Um, let me read to you, if you want, uh, you can read with in Ruth. I'm reading from the ESV, but you're welcome to just listen. Um, I'm going to read from chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites. Uh, from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there for about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Great story to begin with. Uh, I encourage you to go listen to last week's message if you didn't hear it because there's a lot of understanding of the history and the names and the meanings unpacked that really makes this story explode with color uh, that the original readers would have understood in the names that have been said. Uh, But one thing I created that you're not going to go find in the history is an acronym for MOAB, which is My Own Achievable Battle Plan. In other words, they each did as they saw fit. That's the days of the judges. The last verse in, in the book of Judges, before you turn the page and get to Ruth, is there was no king in the land. Everyone did as they saw fit. They were dedicated, committed to their own achievable battle plan. My own achievable battle plan, Moab. So whenever you hear Moab, that's kind of a, a Western independence, my own achievable battle plan, as opposed to Bethlehem, where God's called them to, the promises of God, the calling of God, the inheritance of God. All right, but you can get a lot more of that um, uh, from last week's. Thank you, Steph. That was brilliant. Good anticipation. Thank you so much. Uh, here's how the verse goes for uh, Elimelech. This is just a quick summary so that we can understand the story. A man from a tribe named Fruitful who lived in a place called the House of Bread, his name was My God is King. When famine came, his faith was fruitless, and he did what was right in his own eyes. This is the story of Elimelech, and we looked through last week his journey. Um, he, he starts off being discouraged. There's famine in the house of bread. Things aren't as they ought to be, so he makes a plan to take his family, and he goes through Moab, and he has to go through the, either the Jordan or the Dead Sea, which means he's got to walk past these daily signs of turn back and go back. This is where God brought your people out of. This is a picture of dis- Get back. But he, he's, he's stubbornly determined to stay discouraged, and he disconnects from his people, from his place, from his God, and enters into his own achievable battle plan, Moab. And what happens? He dies. And uh, just to be clear, um, this isn't a warning that if you disobey God, you will be killed. Uh, it's a warning that when you walk uh, disconnected from God and God's people, you will end up being spiritually dead. Uh, you will lose the life of God that He intends for you. Um, and then, so his problem, Elimelech's problem was that he lacked humility. He, he wouldn't trust God. What should he have done when he saw famine? He should have realized there's famine in the land. There's something wrong between God's people and God. We should repent and turn back to God. The Israelites were famous for rejecting God when things were good and turning to other idols and other things. Then God would judge them. Then they would repent and turn back to God, and then things would go, be good for them again. This was a moment for them to repent, but he didn't. So his problem was humility. Uh, he does what is right in his own eyes. And that's uh, Elimelech's story. And, and Elimelech doesn't need us to give them more information. They know the doctrines. 
he, he, he's memorized Scripture. He's an Israelite. He, he knows the, the, the teachings of Scripture. He knows them. Um, you can't tell him much about his, his faith that he doesn't already know. What they need is a miracle of the heart. The, the stubbornness is here, not here. They know stuff, but they're here. And the determination to do what is right in their own eyes comes from here. And so you can sit them down and take them out for a coffee and say, Hey, man, I just want to call you back uh, into a right walk with God. Um, you know, the way that you, you're living, you know, it's, it's not God's best way for you. It's not, and they know that. There's nothing you can say to them. They're like, oh, right, I didn't read that verse. I didn't know about that. But what we're misdiagnosing is the, the problem is here in the heart, and they need a miracle of God changing their heart. Um, I know I don't look like I'm much older than 28. Uh, be kind. Don't re- respond to that. Unless you're agreeing, then say amen. Um, but uh, I've been in pastoral ministry for uh, 20 years, almost. Um, in, and the one thing that I know to be true about people is when they've determined to commit themselves to their own achievable battle plan, there's nothing you can do. Nothing, except pray. But, but what I mean is you can't, you can't say anything to them to turn them around because the heart is much more powerful than all the knowledge in the head. And so they need a miracle of the heart, and we pray for that so that people don't um, spiritually, spiritually die. And so when Elimelechs do come back into community, back, you know, we don't point a finger and say, I told you so, nah, 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 nah. how much did that suck? We don't do that. We welcome them in, knowing that their time outside must have been difficult. What a grace of God that they've come back. There must be real signs of humility. Praise the Lord for these uh, men and women. And so please do, do pray for, if you know Limelech, or you are one, um, please be gentle with them. Okay, we're going to go to the second. Uh, the, today's one is about Malon and Chilion, these two brothers of Limelech. And uh, there's a surprising number of questions, uh, the surprising number of Christians ask my wife and I the same question. Both of us grew up in pastor's homes. Uh, my dad's a pastor, and Nasser's dad's a pastor. My granddad, not my dad's dad, but my mom's dad uh, was a pastor before he passed away. Um, and so there's lots of like kind of ministry people in our families, and, and, and it's a surprising question. I wonder if you could guess, guess it that if there's one question that most people with children ask us, it's how come you didn't walk away from your faith? There's this kind of expectation, you're a pastor's kid, how come you're still a Christian? Um, Like, how come you're doing well? How come you're involved in church? How come you love Jesus? Like, aren't people like you guys supposed to hate the church and be out of it? And, uh, and And the reality is because we've all seen so many examples of children of, of strong Christian families who, who seem to run, run off in a different direction. So that's why people ask the question. I'm going to give you the answer towards the end of this morning. But uh, Malon and Chilean are going to be a, a, a uh, good case study for us. The question I want to ask is, what could happen when you're influenced into a do-what-is-right-in-your-own-eyes faith? What could happen when you're influenced into a do-what-is-right-in-your-own-eyes faith? Inheritance can change a person's life. I uh, often joke with my dad about my own inheritance when he offers to help me financially with something. Um, I'll often say to him, no, it's okay, dad. Why don't you keep the money where it is? 
I'll get it later. Um, look after it for me and care for it, and I'll get it on the inheritance side of this life. Uh, it can change a person's life. It can enable you to do things you couldn't do without it. Uh, you could go on a family vacation. You could buy a house if it's, if it's a big enough inheritance. Uh, inheritances are wonderful. Inheritances can cause families to divide. People, families fight over inheritances. I want more. I want a bigger share. I want what's coming to me. Um, or inheritances can be lost, and that can be terribly discouraging. If, uh, if you see your inheritance getting lost, um, I'm sure you wouldn't like it very much. Um, but an inheritance is not just money. It's everything your family passes down to you. So uh, it's a conversation that we frequently have uh, uh, whenever we visit NASA's family that I don't really enjoy. Because while I joke with my parents, they have like an honest discussion where it's like, hey, uh, what's going to happen to that when you're gone? Um, and it's like, what do you mean gone? You mean like gone? I'm thinking, oh, you mean like gone to work? Or do you mean gone, gone? If you mean gone, gone, you can't ask that question. That's so wrong, wrong. And, um, but they're, they're just open about that. They're just, I'll, I'll take this, I'll take that, I'll take this. And it's just like, when you guys are here no longer, this is what we're, go- we're going to have. And, and they kind of pass, choosing what's going to be passed down to them, not just financially, not just material possessions, but also there's also an emotional side, a character side of, the, of what do you want passed down? What do you want to take from your parents? What do you want to take from your story? What do you want to take from your family values? My, my father-in-law said to us, um, we will never know how we've raised our children until we see how they raise their children. And what he's saying is, you know, you, you, can do an, you can think you're doing an okay job or think you're doing a bad job with your own kids, but then when you see what values they put into their kids, you really know what they took away from your parenting, right? And so if, if uh, this is an example, if Ezekiel, for example, one day is lucky enough to get married and, and has a child, and, and he's just like, no, this child can do whatever he wants. Do whatever you want. There's, there's probably a sign that either I was way too hard on him, so he's rejected the toughness, and he's going to do the opposite, or I was way too soft on him, and he doesn't know how to discipline, right? So that's what my father-in-law is trying to say, is you, you take stuff from your family, and you, you live it out, the stuff you really value, the stuff they really value. Um, and these two boys, number one, I wonder if you can uh, put the other slide on, Steffi. You're doing a great job this morning. Thank you. Can you uh, change the slide to the, no, the, the middle one? Um, there should be one before that. Yes, that one. Thank you. This is how the text goes for them. Two sons from a tribe named Fruitful in a place called the House of Bread were influenced to do what was right in their own eyes. When the time came to be adults, they married themselves into their own way and kept on until they were no more. This is what we see when they took Moabite wives, my own achievable battle plan, and <laughs> how does it end? And uh, this woman lost her, uh, her sons died. Uh, there were no more. And we're trying to keep it spiritual again. We're not trying to warn anyone that you um, are going to die tomorrow. So the Israelites inherited the promised land. That was given to them by God. It was called the land flowing with milk and honey. Not that, I mean, as a kid, I really struggled with that. I didn't like the stickiness of honey, and I didn't like dairy. So it's like, what a horrible place to inherit from God. I would hate to live there. There wasn't really milk flowing, nor was there really honey flowing. Uh, it was just in, those, in your, your understanding of the richness and the abundance and the goodness of God's provision 
for the people in the promised land. And it was handed to them. It was given to them um, by God. And this was their inheritance. And was passed on from one generation to another. But when, fam- when, when this famine comes from the house of bread, this uh, Elimelech, their dad, takes his whole family out. He takes Malon and Chilion um, out of their inheritance. And they were, they were born, to, they were born to, to live out their lives in this land of inheritance, in this land of relationship with God. But through uh, their parents' lack of faith and lack of humility, they, they literally are led out of this promised land, of the spiritual inheritance, and taken into a, let's do things our own ways. Let's look out for ourselves. Let's, we'll just figure this out, what's best for us um, situation. Which shouldn't sound too uncommon, I hope. I mean, if you're sitting there going, whoa, what kind of family would do that? Like almost every kind of family. And so, um, once their dad was dead, they had the chance to go back and regain what was theirs. They they were now the men of the family. They were the adults. They could make a big decision here. But they had already been secularized. They still believed in God. They still had an understanding of God. But through their parents' life of faithlessness, they had been undoctrinated, they had been in, not indoctrinated, indoctrinated in secular, they'd been secularized. They'd been convinced to go after the good life. The good life isn't a bad thing. Otherwise, there'd be no goodness in it. But it is a bad thing if it's a distraction from the God life. The good life is always a, uh, kind of second best if it pull, pulls us away from the God life. And these boys are going after the good life. They secularize. They, they're chasing the things that uh, they want in this life, in this world. And so they believe in God, but, but, the, but more than that, they do what's right in their own eyes. These are subtle things. Um, think about it this way. The devil doesn't come uh, and, and go, uh, let, let's just like bring this absolute obvious spiritual warfare against God's people, but plays the long game. Remember, he's been around much longer than you and I. So the plays the long game. In other words, if I can get rid of, the, uh, I, let's, play, let's, let's work on this generation, but really to affect the next generation or the next generation or the next generation. Uh, let, let's, do the, let's play the long game and slowly degrade their faith until there is no faith left. The opposite is the kingdom of heaven, which comes to people without faith who are, who are dead in their transgressions, spiritually dead, and brings them to life. My father uh, didn't grow up in a Christian family. He, he, he didn't uh, grow up with a relationship with God. But then at some point in his life, God miraculously came, opened up the eyes of his hearts to the truth of Jesus Christ. He received Jesus as his Lord and Savior, and he has never turned back, even uh, so blatantly that I grew up in a Christian home. You see how the kingdom of God goes in that direction, and the, the opposite kingdom goes in the other direction. Let's slowly degrade their faith, the kingdom of God. Let's build the faith for generations to come. Let's spread out throughout all the earth. Let's take the light of the kingdom that all people might know the goodness of God. They're going in opposite directions. They're playing the long game. So your decisions today maybe uh, not, not seem like a big deal today, but if you're joining in the long game, ooh, warning. Woo, 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 woo. And so uh, when I'm self-centered, this is true, uh, sadly, when I'm self-centered and act independently, my reasons make a lot of sense to me. I could explain it. But then when my children are self-centered and act independently, I tell them off almost every single time. It's just an ugly look. It's not attractive. 
it's so horrible. Because their reasons to be self-centered and independent don't make sense to me, and they're affecting the family, but my reasons to be self-centered and independent make sense to me, and so it's okay. But you see how that works. And so Elimelech did something he probably wouldn't want his kids to ever do, but it ended up that they just repeated this. They just, they just had more courage to take it further. Um, so let's move. Uh, so we have this. The first step of their journey is that they are led or influenced into independence, to the belief that, uh, that they're independent of, to think of themselves first, to do what's right in their own eyes. This is what they're led into. It wasn't a, a truth that they got from the Scriptures. It was a truth passed down as a value from their parents, in, in their case. But it could be anyone else who maybe influences them. And so be, uh, this independence um, begins to affect all of their actions. Those who influence us uh, will usually, um, sorry, those, those that we influence will have more courage to bear fruit than we did in sowing the seed. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Um, if, if, uh, if I'm always making marriage look difficult, if I'm always complaining in my marriage, fighting with my wife, creating tension between us, I'm never celebrating her, laughing with her, dancing with her, my children's idea is going to be tainted about marriage, and they may have more courage than I did, to live out the reality of that. And so they may live with a low idea of what marriage is and the covenant of sex. And so they go do, you know, they, they, they go live out a kind of a reality in terms of relationships. With the, and I think, how could you do that? You have been married to your mom for 30 years. How can you? Be? But the, the seeds are sowed of discontent that I have in my marriage. They just have more courage to bear the ultimate fruit of that. Do you see, or let me give you another example. Uh, if I'm often critiquing the worship, the songs, the excellence, the sermons, uh, or someone's testimony when they speak, or what someone is wearing, or who didn't show up, or if I merely model that my faith is a duty, not a delight, oh, it's Sunday again, we've got to go to church. Uh, it's okay, we can have fun afterwards, kids. Um, let's just, it's just two hours, then we can get to what we really want to do. If that's the model that I set... Uh, I, may have, I may never have courage to actually do what I want to do, which is disengage, but my children will more likely have courage to bear the fruit I, I wished I, I could have. In other words, they're going to have a very low view of the people of God, of the community, and their place in that community. They'll have no attachment. They just, dad and mom probably never really wanted to go. Let's just not go. Let's go do something else. Dad and mom wish they could. We can do you understand, you see how that works out? And so the things that we kind of influence or, or are influenced by uh, the next generation is kind of a courage to really just flesh it out. And that's what my father-in-law kind of saying, the values that Nas and I think we have are not the values that we're going to pass down. We will see the values we'll be passed down when my kids actually start parenting or start their marriage or the, continue their spiritual journey. But we'll see what we put into them. Um, and this is difficult. For those of, of you who are young, nothing I've said is difficult. Because you haven't had an opportunity to have a life kind of influence on someone. But those of you who, the, who are older, this is difficult because you can see in your life uh, things you would love to do a different way. And you, you and I, 
uh, have to find freedom in Christ. That we are not God, we are not Jesus, and the things that we wished we could maybe do better or different, He, he can redeem. He can reconcile. All right, so that's independence, is they led, they led to independence. This is their norm, is they are influenced to believe this way. So they're not making this choice. Someone's made this choice for them, okay? Then second stage is isolation from. This is, is now their, their home is isolation. Their norm is outside of the normal place they should be. They, you know, for these Malon and Chilean, they should be, Amongst the people of God in the land of uh, in the promised land in Bethlehem with the Ephrathites, they should be there. That should be their norm. But their norm, they've grown up, is is isolation from that, and in this place they should have never been, and that's their normal. They're at home in their isolation. Um, and so, when Dad dies, instead of returning home to where they should and go back, they they take Moabite wives. They marry themselves into a pagan community that worships Baal. Now think about this. You remember that great story in the Bible? The prophets of Baal or the priests of Baal get their ox and Elijah gets his and, and, and they pray for it and pray for it and they cut themselves and they can't get fire to come down and then he pours water on and pours water on and, and builds a little moat around it and builds water on and then he says, God, please show yourself that you are the only God. Fire from heaven, nothing's left. It sucks up the water, burns the wood, the ox is no more. Finished. And then they go and destroy the prophets of Baal. These, they now marrying women who worship Baal. I mean, this is how far they've fallen. I'm not trying to say anything bad about the specific people themselves as much as how far they've fallen from worshiping the only God who's shown himself over and over and over. To now going, yeah, I don't know, there's nothing wrong with that. They're at home in isolation. They are so far from the promises of God. They have been secularized. They are isolated from the realities of what it means to live in your inheritance. What's yours? And uh, dad's, dad's brief commitment to his own achievable plan becomes their life modus operandi. It's the way they live their lives. Dad's blip on a screen becomes their norm. Um, and so these sons carry on. Um, it says that they took these wives that they determined to live in Moab, and it says that they remained there for another 10 years. They weren't wandering away from God like their parents. They were at home away from God. You see... You see how dangerous. You see the long-term plan. The kingdom of God pushes us generation after generation to God. The kingdom that stands against God pushes us generation after generation away. And one generation that walked away from God, the other one feels at home, away from God. Something else you notice in their story, as as we read in the verses, is that they remained there after 10 years, but there were no children. (laughs) Now, in an ancient culture... For two sons to be married to two women, and after 10 years, neither one of them have children. That, that's not a, the narrator hasn't just kind of added something in for us just to move. It's a significant point. It's, it's 
barrenness. It's fruitlessness. These are the people whose tribe were fruitful. And to not have children, to not have a legacy, to not have an inheritance to, pa- to pass on is ultimate uh, fruitlessness. And it's a way that we can see that the way that these kids were living, that these boys were living, was outside of God's will. Just as their parents should have seen in Bethlehem when there was famine, that God is calling us to repent and be soft-hearted and turn to Him, not to be discouraged and disconnected, this would have been a sign to them. There's something wrong. Turn to God. How do we gospelize this just as... as um, this, is a, this is a more common way that we may say it in this church from this pulpit, is that you can pursue whatever you want. You will eventually find, money takes power, you will eventually find that it doesn't satisfy. It doesn't deliver on its promise to make you content. You'll want more. You'll want different. You'll want other. It's the same thing as over here, seeing a kind of famine in their marriages is a sign that the, these boys should have gone, oh, hold on. Something is not right. Let's turn ourselves back to the Lord, our God. Children were just a blessing from the Lord. So there is no blessing here. So they they at home in isolation. And lastly, their journey ends in insignificance. Again, I want to alert you to uh, spiritual insignificance. There is no person who's ever lived that is insignificant. Every person is significant. Every person is made in the image of God. Every person has the right to human dignity. No one is insignificant. But you can live a spiritual life that leaves you spiritually insignificant. Not part of the story. And so they end up like their dad. They don't humble themselves. They don't repent. They choose to live outside of their inheritance. And like their dad, they die. It's not, it's not a fantastic story. So what's the solution? Let me show you. Let me tell you, while I turn to Romans, let me tell you what, what is not a solution. What's not a solution is uh, to go and um, get on the phone, because there won't be a lot of Malons and Chileans here right now, um, but they, most of them are going to be outside, uh, and you, the solution is not to go and ring them up and say, hey, I went to church this morning, and I've seen your future, man. You need to come to Jesus right now. You, you, I mean, while all that may be true, that's just not going to be helpful at all. Uh, but let me show you a solution. In other words, we're not going to put pressure on anyone to, to solve it themselves. Paul writes in Romans 4, uh, verse 13, he says, talking about the promise, and that's what got them into the promised land, the promise that was given to Abraham and, and the covenant that God made to make a people of his own. He says the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be an heir to the world did not come uh, of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. In other words, urgency and finger pointing. And dragging people into the kingdom of God isn't going to work. Because the promise didn't come through circumcision. didn't come through keeping the law. 
It didn't come through doing the right thing. Hey, man, you better get to church on Sundays. Hey, you better uh, give your tithe. Hey, you better show up at CG. Hey, you better, I mean, if you're not, how do you know you're not a Malon or Chilean? And then you're going to end up in, that's not, not, that's, Paul says, that's not how the promise comes. The promise comes through the, the inheritance. How do you step back into the inheritance you have, into relationship with God, into all of his promises and his goodness, into reconciliation, into being called children of God? How do you step into that? As a Melon or Chilean, how does someone? Through the righteousness that comes through by faith in Jesus Christ. It's a repenting of living in my own achievable battle plans. It's a, it's a, it's a repentance of living, of doing as I see fit. And a recognition that I need to humble myself before Jesus. And He is enough. He is enough. He is everything. And He has done it all. A righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus. That's how you get back into your inheritance. That's such wonderful news. That every single friend or family member or person you work with, colleague or go to school with, that is right now walking in isolation from the promises of God, their way is the same way as the way you and I got in. A righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. So, Elimelech and his two boys have these journeys that lead to endedness. In their faithlessness, they became irrelevant to the story. The narrator just leaves them behind. We have to talk about them because they talked about but they, they get left behind. We don't want people to be left out of the story, do we? And nor does Jesus. That's why he came. Because he doesn't want us to be left out of the story. He brings us into his story. He raises us and puts us into his story. And then sends us out with the good news to bring others into the story, into the inheritance. The wonderful thing about the inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ, as I draw this to an end, is that we don't have to, like I have, well, I, I'm trying to wait until my parents are no more to enjoy the inheritance. The thing with Jesus is you can't wait because he's never going to die. So it's a living inheritance. You get to join him in all the goodness of God. And then everyone we bring doesn't diminish your inheritance because we are all uh, sharing it in Jesus Christ. There is not, there's not kind of limited supply of love or contentment or comfort. I think I said this last week, if I didn't, if I did, forgive me, I'll say it again. Dallas Willard has this great answer to what is heaven like. He's this very old man who's no longer alive, but he was a very old man when he answered it. And they said, Dallas, what do you think heaven will be like? He's a philosopher, theologian. He says, I don't think we'll uh, know that we're there for a long time. And he explains, he says, it will, you, you will be you. You will be more you than you've ever been. You will be in the place you were always meant to be, meant to be in the presence of the God that you're, in your heart of hearts you've longed to be. In other words, you will never be more comfortable and content than when you're in heaven. And he said, I think it will take a long time before you realize, oh, I think I must have died. Because this just feels right. This just is right. This is just home. Most people, all people who are living outside of relationship with Jesus, don't get to have that feeling. 
They don't know in their heart of hearts the contentment. Chasing whatever it may be, money, sex, power, whatever it might be, to find comfort, to find pleasure, to find contentment, to find delight, to find purpose, to find meaning, to find identity. And those things never fulfill. And it's an endless cycle, as you know and I know, and, and we're not immune to it. Of discontentment, disillusionment, discouragement. Until we can turn to Jesus, turn our eyes upon Jesus, look full in His glory and grace, and the things of this world will go strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. I think I messed that song up, but I got it right in the end. So the way back from irrelevance is humility and repentance. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. I want to end this sermon. Like I told you, we love bringing Jesus in at the end, and He is, in, in other words, it's only through faith in Jesus that we are made righteous. It's not through works. It's not a burden. But I want to, those of you who are in a relationship, like you, you, uh, you're, you're raising children or you're, an, you're a leader of some sort and you influence others, um, I want to encourage you to see the warning bells uh, of functionally living in, independently in doing things that you see fit. Because you may find a way to, to manage and cope and cling to your faith through it, but the generation that comes after you may just go and live out your, your disillusionment more fully, more vividly, more courageously. It's, it's not a burden on you to do better. It's a burden on us to be real in our relationship with God and to humble our hearts. Say, Lord, the virus of my heart, I don't want it caught. I don't want it passed on. Please help me get healed. For those who maybe feel as though there's something of an inheritance kind of passed down that leads to isolation and uh, kind of makes it difficult for you. You're going to need real courage from Jesus to break new ground. I didn't need that. As I told you at the beginning, why did we not walk away from our faith, my wife and I? Two different families will we'll give exactly the same story. Because there, there was a real, authentic, daily love for God demonstrated in their lives. And there was a kindness and a grace for the broken people of God called the church that, that had an effect on our family. As pastors, you, you, you feel it. You bear the brunt of it. And we saw, both of us can say in different ways, how they loved people in tough times, patience and kind, not perfectly, but deeply. That to not choose God became the hard decision. To choose God wasn't the easy decision. At some point in our life, you and I, every one of us, our faith has to be transferred from faith in our parents' faith to faith, our own faith. That has to happen. But it became much harder to turn away from God than it came to continue having faith in God. That, that moment of transfer is vulnerable. It feels shaky. Their faith isn't good enough. I need my own now. 
I remember that happening. It was a two-year journey until I was grounded in my own faith. But to not choose God was harder. Why? Because of the demonstration of, of love between God and, and, and these examples, these parents. And love overflowing to others. And a broken story. And I can make you, I can, I can just tell you story after story of brokenness. And make you angry. Or story after story of reconciliation. But it came with an authentic, consistent relationship with God. My parents, Nasa's parents weren't perfect. Their faith wasn't perfect. They were figuring stuff out. But they clung to Jesus. They taught us how to cling to Jesus. And so I want to encourage you. Cling to Jesus. Melons and Chileans, humble your hearts and find Jesus. Those of us who are raising the next generation have soft hearts. Turn our hearts to Jesus. Let me pray for us and then Nass will lead us in communion. Before I pray, I wonder if you can just pin yourself in relation to a portrait, these two portraits. Uh, Steph, could you put up the last slide? Just pin yourself. The discouraged leads to the secular. The discouraged may never become the secular, but that's where it leads. If you, by the goodness of God's grace, have thus far been able to un- not been able to identify with either of these, I want you this morning to celebrate in your heart of hearts the goodness of God for the story that you have and to thank Him deeply and abundantly for your spiritual journey. If you have been able to identify yourself with one or both of these, I also want you to turn your eyes to Jesus and to ask Him to help your heart to be soft towards Him, to be able to lose cynicism and criticism if that's the side you're on, the, dis- the discouraged side. To be able to, if that's already been your journey and you've come back, then to be able to walk in self-forgiveness and not make that your whole future story either. But to walk in the freedom of His grace. Where if you at the moment are the spiritually dead, then I want to invite you to turn your eyes to Jesus this morning. I want you to know that He offers you you His hand and invites you into a relationship with God. And I want you to know that He will influence you to live differently. But that's not the entry. That's not the decision you have to make at the first step. You merely need to put your hand and your life into His. And invite you into a loving and living relationship to bring you spiritual life. 
to bring you into reconciliation with God. That's what your heart is longing for. Maybe you've come, maybe you've been, maybe, maybe you grew up in a Christian home that just wasn't believable. Invite you back into the hand of Jesus. Or maybe you grew up without any Christian influence. I want to invite you to take the hand of Jesus.